Take your Bibles and go to the book of John, chapter 6. And as you're turning there, I want to begin to steer your thoughts towards the consideration of consistency versus inconsistency. Here's a good thumbnail example, kind of a thumbnail sketch example of what I'm talking about. Consistency. New England Patriots. Five Super Bowls. Dallas Cowboys. Never mind. This morning, about 4.15, I was sitting in my office at the house trying to get in my head straight and my thinking in line for today's messages. And at 4.15 or so in the morning, there's not much going on in my neighborhood. The uh, tracking and trapping of the possum in my front, I mean, in my backyard by my dog was over by that time. Um, and it was just quiet. And as I sat in my recliner in my office, I was at the, ha- at the house, I was thinking through um, this idea of consistency and inconsistency in the Christian life. And there was something that kept invading my thoughts as I was trying to do that. And it was the consistent tapping of the second hand on a battery-operated clock in my office. It is amazing how on a day-to-day basis when the world is going and all kinds of stuff is going on, how the noise of a second hand on a small clock in an office in the house just gets washed into the noise of the day. But everything else stops, and that's all I could hear. I started getting really frustrated with the sound. And then it is as if the Lord said, uh, that's what I'm talking about. So I had to step back from that. So let me see if I can help over the next 15 or 20 minutes or so. Let's try in rapid fire session here, uh, deal with the idea of consistency in the Christian life that mirrors that of that second hand on that clock. Now, the corollary to what I'm going to be saying is that that clock is going to be no good to me or to anybody else if that second hand doesn't keep moving. If I unplug it from its power source, in this case happens to be a battery, but if I pull that battery out, that clock will stop functioning and it will be worthless to me. So on one hand, I was frustrated by the clicking of it. On the other hand, I needed it to do that in order for me to be where I needed to be on time. Okay, take that and let's go to the book of John chapter 6, because we now pick up in this next level, uh, or not really the next level as much as just the next sign. John is laying out for us these seven signs that point us to who Jesus Christ is. He continues to push into our laps two basic questions. What do you believe about Jesus and how much do you believe? Now, one of the things that he's going to get us to today, as I've tried to put it in my own terms here, is he's going to move us to the need for killer focus. Now, that clock, as it was going off in my office this morning, was diverting my focus from where it needed to be until I was able to get it in the right perspective to get my focus where it needed to be. In your life and in mine, we go through times where our focus gets diverted, What we need in life, especially in the Christian life, is what I call killer focus. 
That killer focus is that kind of stick to itness that you can just kind of focus in on what's happening and complete the task no matter of what else is going on around you. Had a conversation in the back here just before we got started. I told somebody, I feel like I'm a fly on that, that is ADHD. I, I, this morning, I've just been all over, bouncing all over the place, almost like a junior high boy. Sorry. How is it with you and focus in your Christian life? You know, one of the ways for me to really ask that question, to drop it right squarely into your lap, is are you consistently growing as a Christian in your relationship with Christ, or do you find yourself kind of settling into places and there's no movement there? What we need is that constant, concerted, killer focus. Now, it, it would seem that we have that in place fairly well. We go to church on most given Sundays. We, we have the ability in our daily lives to focus in on other things. And most of us have jobs of one kind or another. And so we're able to go and we're able to hold jobs. And, and you know, that requires a certain amount of focus. But there are those times in life where we get pushed, especially in our spiritual lives, that our focus gets out of whack. And instead of having killer focus that keeps us in the channel, so to speak, our focus becomes situational and we see things around us and it kills us. So killer focus kind of takes on two different meanings for us today. And the disciples in this now fifth sign that we're going to see, miracle that Jesus uh, has... They're going, to, they're going to show us us, I'm afraid. So let's read it and then we'll come back to it. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 16. This is what John wrote. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat And they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. And then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was was at the land to which they were going. Now, I'm going to come back, and we're going to take a look at six different elements of this, because I think these six different elements have something to say to us about our own focus and our consistency or inconsistency, whichever the case may be for us. So as we come into this, two basic questions. Once again, I'll throw them out. You wear them for a while. Do you believe in Jesus? And if so, how much do you believe in Jesus? From this passage, the first thing I want us to look at, verses 16 and 17, are what I call Jesus directives. Now, Mark actually gives us a little more information on this particular incident And so I want us to go there. So you can keep your place here and run run backwards with me to Mark chapter 6. Because in Mark chapter 6, as we come to his account of this, we we find a little more about the directives that Jesus gives. So Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 45, I'll read this and you look for the differences and the detail that John left out. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. Now, I'm going to stop right there for a second and make sure that we're on the same page. This, in both accounts, comes hard on the heels of the feeding of the 5,000. And so Jesus has 
delivered lunch, if you will, supper in this particular case, for those people on that hillside. And after that sign and that miracle, it says, as we've seen before, that the crowds wanted to make Jesus king by force. So part of what Jesus does to counteract that is he sends his disciples down to the boats to go to the other side of the north end of the Sea of Galilee. Now, that's no small thing. Uh, As we'll see in just a few moments, going to the water was not that big a deal for most of them. Some of them had been professional fishermen, so that part of it's not that big of a deal. This turns into a huge deal before it's over with, but the detail that I want you to get as we start on this is that they, the disciples, are given a directive by Jesus that puts them squarely into a crisis of belief. So one of the things that I want us to get before we move on to the second key element of this is that if we want to have consistency, remember the second hand on the clock, if you want your Christian life to just kind of click like that where you're consistently growing in your belief in Jesus Christ, You need to hear and respond appropriately to the directives that Jesus gives. They heard it. They recognized his authority. They did what he had uh, commanded them to do. And in the process of that, it put them in position so that they might grow even more. I'm going to move on with that. But as I move on, let me just lay this one in your lap. Are you appropriately positioned today to hear the voice of Jesus? Because the reality for us is that he continues to give directives to us in our lives. Uh, Teresa and I and uh, Brandon and Sarah are here, and so uh, Brandon had a birthday this week. He is really old now. And... um, so we were having a discussion last night, just family discussion about things and plans and, you know, what's ahead and those kind of deals. And, and, and so part of what we have in that discussion in, in our family in an ongoing kind of way is not just what can we do, what might we do, but what would God have us to do? But you see, underneath that is that expectation that God, Jesus himself, still gives directives to us. Are you appropriately positioned to get his directives for your life? That's the first one. And if you're not, just so you know, your growth will be inconsistent without that. Here's the second one. This is what I call the familiar territory and task part of the story. So far, so good with these disciples. They've been on the hillside. Jesus fed them all. They had leftovers. uh, And the crowd, this great euphoric moment where everybody's going, oh, this is the guy. Let's push him into power. We'll get everything. He'll overthrow the Romans. And we'll, we'll all be what God has promised us to be forever. So far, so good for these disciples. But Jesus steps into that and he pushes them down to this boat. And that boat then is to launch out into the north end of the Sea of Galilee. Teresa and I had the opportunity six years ago, uh, almost exactly six years ago now, to go to Israel. Uh, We spent the first few days up in the northern part of the country, uh, up near and on and near the Sea of Galilee. Uh, One of the things that our tour guide did for us, the first full day that we were there, after we finally got a night's sleep from flying all night before and then a full day of uh, being on buses and that stuff, we slept and we got up and he said, okay, this morning we're going to go down, we're going to get on these boats that are down here. All right, so they're... they're, 
They're like a pontoon boat, except not nearly so stable. Ours got out into the middle of the Sea of Galilee and the battery died on it. And so we were stranded out there. And so we were out there in the middle of that. And I started thinking through these stories, this one and other ones where the disciples are out there and it's stormy and Jesus calms the storm. And we were sitting out there. I was thinking, okay, that's a cool thought. Uh, But the boat itself was about the size probably of a pontoon boat. And so we went off uh, to the northern part of it. They led us off onto the shore and there's a museum out there. And the whole focus of that museum is this one boat that archaeologists dug up a number of decades ago. And it's on display there in this museum. It's the kind of boat uh, from this particular period. They date it back to roughly first century A.D., the time of Jesus. In other words, it's almost certainly the size uh, of the boats that are in question here. So let me see if I can put that in perspective for you. I'm I'm not really great estimating size, but I'm going to say it's somewhere between the size of a good kayak and a bass boat. And these guys now have been pushed down into that boat. It's uh, Now, see, I, I... I learned in Central Texas about boats, right? And so my RA program that I was in um, in our church went to RA camp on Lake Brownwood one time, and they taught us how to function in canoes. Uh, In case you're not aware of it, it's really easy to swamp a canoe. So this boat that I'm talking about now was built kind of like that. And so I'm trying to give you this stuff so that you can kind of tie into the situation in which they find themselves. They've been pushed now down off of the hillside where the miracle happened, down into these boats, and it's getting on towards night now. And Jesus says, go to the other side and I'll meet you over there. And it's in the middle of that that this storm comes, and we'll get to that in just a second. But here's what I want you to get. Those disciples would have thought nothing of getting into a boat like that and going even into the night because some of those disciples had been professional fishermen up to this point. It's familiar territory for them. Just like it's familiar for you to crawl into your pickup truck and drive 15 to 30 minutes to get to work every day, that's kind of what this would have been for them. Okay, go get in the boat and go to the other side and I'll meet you over there. It's familiar territory And the task is right along the lines of what they had done before. Here's why I think that's noteworthy for us when it comes to consistency and having killer focus in our daily Christian lives. Familiarity tends to breed comfort. We get comfortable with the routine. And so we don't have to necessarily think through all of the different elements of what we're doing on a day-to-day basis. We do that basic idea of what we do day in. Well, let's take as a case in point. How many of you text and drive? Now, wait a minute. Before you answer that, I'm going to get our law enforcement people to pay special attention here. You remember when phones came out when we first started texting? Were you comfortable texting and driving then? Most of us were not. But most of us are now. Now, whether I've seen you do this or not, every time, every time I drive from here into town to Beaumont, uh, I pass somebody who apparently is steering with their knees because they have both hands on their phone and they're looking here at their phone and every once in a while they'll glance up and down. Now, I know that you wouldn't do that and you know I wouldn't do that. <clears throat> but we get comfortable with stuff, the more we do it. 
And comfort, in this case, leads to complacency. Just because you're comfortable texting and driving does not make it safe. As a matter of fact, we could give you all kinds of statistical analysis that says texting and driving, the more you do that, the more likely you are to have a problem while you're driving. If it was only about texting and driving, that would be one thing, but we're talking about the Christian life and how we live every day. And the complacency factor, the comfort factor, that part where we get really settled into the Christian life often moves us to where we have a, uh, what's the right way, a detached level of thinking when it comes to the Christian life. We know that we go to church on Sunday, or at least most Sundays. We have other pieces of our Christian life that we do, and that may have little routines around the house every day. As I was growing up, one of the routines we had is my dad was off at uh, seminary during the week, and mom was trying to raise two teenage boys who were all kinds of trouble. She would make us get up, and before we could go to school, sit down in the living room and do a family devotion time. Do you mind me telling you I hated that? You know why? Because my head might have been forced to be in that room, my heart was a long ways away from that. Just because we get comfortable in the routine of church stuff doesn't mean that we're being consistent in growing spiritually. It was the smart guy who said it, whoever said it first, just because you go hang out in a garage doesn't make you a car. So just because you do Christian kind of stuff doesn't make you a growing Christian. And so we settle in, and it's the familiar, much like these disciples in these boats. And with that, complacency steps in, and our growth stops. To put it in terms maybe a few of you will get, the great Christian music band known as Pink Floyd in their epic album called The Wall, which traced an individual very likely tied to uh, one of the founding members of their group and traced his slip into mental illness. One of the songs that they wrote there is called Comfortably Numb. And I would assert that there are Christians packing churches today who have grown comfortably numb in their nice, familiar Christianity. Consistent growth with killer focus doesn't come when we're comfortable. It tends to come when something gets pushed in us. So are you comfortably numb today? Let's go to number three. After all of that, we finally get to the problem part of this. And the problem part of this is actually kind of interesting, I think. It's amazing. Remember, I want to take you back to that hillside. In the passage just before this in John and also in Mark, on that hillside, 5,000 men, who knows how many women and children with that. And Jesus takes this little nothing of a lunch and everybody eats to their fill. They want to make him king. It is a high euphoric moment for those people including those disciples. So much so that I believe Jesus put them in a boat to get away from that crowd and their stinking thinking about trying to force Jesus into what they wanted him to do. 
Oh, by the way, that's not a bad place to apply it a little bit because in our day and age, there are all kinds of people, even in churches, who want to push Jesus into their own mold and say, this is what we want you to do. Jesus just doesn't buy into that. Not only does he not buy into it, he don't want his disciples to buy into that. And so he pushes them into boats and he says, y'all go to the other side. I'm going to go over here and pray. That's from Mark's gospel. And then I'll meet you over there. Isn't it an amazing thing how powerful a three or four mile boat ride can be in destroying your faith? Look again at this. These disciples, three to four miles into their journey, roughly halfway across, and they encounter a storm. Many people, Christian people that is, fall into this. Oh, everything's great when Jesus is out there doing his thing, sign after miracle after sign after miracle after sign after miracle. Woohoo! Get him, Jesus. This is awesome. But boy, you still throw a storm into a boat ride and all of a sudden our growth and our focus gets killed. So it is with these disciples. I guess I need to be really careful here because uh, I, I really kind of want to go after them, to be honest with you. I, 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 get, I get to this point and then I'm going, to come on, guys, really. You're not probably four or five hours max away from what Jesus did up there. And just so that we keep this all in context, this is now the fifth of the seven signs, the seven miracles that we're going to find John as he uh, promoting for, for us about Jesus and what he has done. So now this is, they're four deep into this. They, they have plenty of opportunity as they look backwards to go, okay, Jesus is good for this no matter what the problem is, except here's their problem. They've not seen Jesus do anything with the water yet. Oh, sure, he can heal people, but I don't need to be healed. I need to be rescued. Oh, sure, he can bring lunch, but I'm not hungry now. Matter of fact, I'm just full. I just, you know, we just had, we had dinner on the mountainside up there. What I need is Jesus to deal with this situation. All right, so here's the killer focus, the focus that kills us. When we get our focus off of Jesus and onto the situations of our life, we're bound to fail. Now, Jesus is not bound to fail, but we are. And that's where our inconsistency comes in. Because as long as Jesus is delivering for us, everything's cool. But boy, when that storm hits and I'm the one in the boat, my prayer is you're going to lose a good preacher down here. You better get to it, Jesus. Situational focus is the focus that kills. Let me, uh, let me see if I can put that in perspective. I have a new favorite doctor. I don't think he's in here. Uh, but if he is, I'll give him props. Uh, I'm not going to give you his name um, but, because I didn't ask him if I could. But he's my new favorite doctor, and here's why. I mentioned him a few weeks ago. I started going to him, wasn't sure about going, all that stuff. Here, here's why he's my new favorite doctor. Uh, he gave me some information uh, a week ago that I'm finding to be great, great medical advice. Now, this may be a surprise to some of you, but I really do need to lose a little bit of weight. And, uh, um, and so I've been working at that. 
And I've been seeing this doctor because of back stuff. And so, and so this past week, he said, so how's it coming with you uh, on the weight loss thing? I said, I'm making progress. I told him how much weight I'd lost. And he said, well, have you tried this diet? And I said, no. And he said, oh, you got to try it. I said, you're kidding. Oh, I should tell you what the diet is. It's the ice cream diet. Yes. I said, you, you just got to know, Bluebell's my deal, right? I'm a big Bluebell fan. And he, he, so, you know, he's got me not really strapped into this table thing, but almost like that. And so he says, you got to try this, this ice cream diet. I, said, I looked at I pulled up off and I said, look, I said, you, you're lying to me. He said, no, I'm serious. I said, come on, man, don't, don't play games with me. You're my doctor. He said, I promise you, he said, every night after five or after supper, but not after seven o'clock, don't eat anything except ice cream. Yes, I'm in on this diet. I said, you need to explain this for me because I'm thinking that can't be good for you. And he said, uh, no, he said, I'm telling you, I did that and I've lost 20 pounds doing just that. Well, okay, good enough for you. I said, would you write that on a prescription pad for me so that... Maybe insurance will pick up my bluebell bill. <laughs> okay, so let me pull that pull back from that and put it right down where we're at here, right? And see, if I just wanted to focus on the situation, I would listen to that and give it credence that it deserves no credence to get. Right? Um but my situation puts me in position. If, if I'm so focused on this situation, I need to find something in here that helps me have ice cream and lose weight, then that opens me up for any alternate truth. I know that I just went to a political point of reference for us, uh, and I don't really want us to get lost in that one, but I do want us to own the society in which we live today. Postmodern thinking, among other things, says... There is no real absolute truth. Truth is what I want it to be. Or better said, truth is what resonates with me. So I could take, do the bluebell diet, and in my mind, I could convince myself that that's truth. The problem with that is, it's probably not real truth. But if I base my whole life and existence after that, I may die of a bluebell heart attack. Now, at least I would die happy, but I would still die because I was using truth that wasn't really truth. Does that make sense? You with me? All right. So what happens is when we get into this, this situational focus, when the problems of our life come and we have all of this body of the of the activity of Jesus and the power of Jesus and the love of Jesus for us and his involvement of our life. We look backwards and we have all of that stuff to work with, but our focus goes off of him and onto the situation. Now I'm open for all kinds of false truth, if you will. And once we get off center, once we take that first move off of center when it comes to truth, as God defines it for us, then we're, then we're in tough, tough situations there. You ever been on a diet um, where 
you decided to give yourself a cheat day? Okay, that means you fell off of your diet. That's what that means. But if you're on a diet and you say, I'm gonna, today's going to be cheat day, and for today, I'm going to have six gallons of bluebell. Okay? If you do that, you will find that the next day it's harder to get back on track with your diet after you've done that. Okay? That's just kind of the way we're wired most of the time. Unless you're one of those people with killer focus and you can just zero in. When I went to do my uh, last level of formal education, they sat me down with Teresa in the same room and they said, we're going to just overload you with work. You just need to be aware that this is going to be, you're going to have to focus in and get this done. That's the killer focus that I'm talking about. And some of us have that and we're very disciplined in everyday life, but most of us are not. And so we move off of that killer focus focus that gets it done right and we get onto a focus that kills us because we look at the situation and we lose Jesus somewhere. So we get to the fourth one here and that the problem is what it is and now they're out there and it's a storm and it's in the middle of the night and Jesus shows up. Help arrives. That's the fourth one that we get here. There's really two pieces of good news here. I'm going to mention these and move on. If we were to go back, and I'm not going to take the time, but in Mark chapter 6, verse 48, one of the things that I want you to get, and that is that Mark records that Jesus, from his prayer lookout place, sees his disciples in trouble. You need to know, if you're here today, and your situation is causing your faith to fail, you've so focused on other things and you seem to have lost Jesus somewhere in the process, don't miss this. Jesus never loses you. And he sees you. And I don't care how bad things are for you today. I mean, I care how bad they are, but don't let how bad those things are for you today cause you to think somehow, one of those alternate truths, that somehow God doesn't care about you. That will never be true. It will never be a day that God does not care about you. He always cares. And the great picture that I have of this is even though these disciples, it says, are pushing against the wind and rowing against the wind and the waves that whip up on that uh, that Sea of Galilee are, are known even to this day to be treacherous when the wind blows like that. Jesus sees that. Not only does he see that, but he responds to that. And so he goes walking just a little stroll out across the lake. This is one of those times that I wish we had some time, maybe in a smaller context in a classroom or something, to just, just kind of talk back and forth about what this must have looked like from the shore or from the boat or maybe from another boat. Help arrives. Don't miss that. There's the sign for you. As far as John is concerned, this Jesus not only has the ability to heal people up close, he has the ability to heal people from a distance, he has the ability to feed people, and now he has the ability to walk on water. That's extraordinary. Incredible stuff. But our poor disciples, this is the fifth one now, our poor disciples have the problem that we have, and that is they tend to interpret the present through the past. In John six nineteen, it says this, And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. They were frightened. Do you think that's an understatement? 
If we went to Mark's gospel, and I'm not going to take the time to do it, but in verse 48 and 49, I think what we find there is it says that they thought it was a ghost. And this is the uh, interpreting the present through the past. Now, what they should have done is to interpret the present through the past, but especially those miracles that Jesus did that proved to them who he is, that pushed them to the crisis of belief. Do you believe in Jesus? And if so, how much? But they didn't look at it from that vantage point. They used their good Jewish upbringing and their lives as professional fishermen to feed their fear here. You know, one of the things that we know about first century Jewish life is they, uh, th- there was this idea that the sea and the water especially was, was the kind of the genesis point for chaos. They, they weren't a seagoing people. They were land people. And so much of, especially we go look through the Old Testament, we see this imagery of, of the, the ocean, the Mediterranean Sea as we would call it, or even some of this stuff here, as that point where, where even God has to prove himself. It's so sinister out there. So these professional fishermen revert back to their good Jewish upbringing. We're out on the sea and it's at night and it only gets dark like that on the water at night. And the waves, and by now they've been rowing against the wind and they're tired and they're worn out. It's been this back and forth emotional roller coaster kind of a day. And somewhere in the middle of the night, their good Jewish upbringing gets the best of them. And they lose heart. We shouldn't be too hard on them about that. We all have the tendency to lose heart in our struggles, don't we? I learned over the last year or so that pain takes you places mentally that you never would go otherwise. We all are these disciples in this boat, really. So their good Jewish upbringing works against them. And then on top of that, their good, their good professional fisherman mythical lore works against them also. Because this lake, as I said already, is treacherous. And the winds that blow in from the high country down into that that's 600 plus feet below sea level, uh, those are storms that blow through there. And it was not unusual for boats to capsize out there and for fishermen to drown out there. And so the folklore that began to bubble up that helps us understand where Mark's coming from is that they began, these sailors began to see ghosts out there. What better place to think you see a ghost than in a storm at night when you're worn out? Satan's really good at hitting you when you're most vulnerable for false truths. They're afraid. And who can blame them? Well, (laughs) we all should see beneath the surface of that. Because they do have a past with Jesus. Just like you have a past with Jesus. And I have a a past with Jesus. And so just because I'm in a situation and everything about me screams out, God doesn't care and he's not here. My history with him argues to the contrary. Do you believe in Jesus? How much do you believe in Jesus, really?
You see, the reality is that our past, I said a couple of weeks ago, that our past is not our future. Just because we've been through bad stuff in the past, uh, some of us go through bad, bad stuff. People do stuff to us, and it, and it scars us emotionally and otherwise. But just because you've been through that doesn't mean that that's who you are from now on. Jesus steps into those realities, and he makes a new creation out of you. So your past is not your future. That's what I said several weeks ago. But here's the corollary to that. You can choose to let your past be your future. If you choose not to get past some of the stuff of your past, then you're locked into that past, and that is who you become. These disciples have plenty of evidence that should cause them to go, it's just another storm. I bet Jesus can deal with this. But they don't do that, just like I don't do that, and just like you don't do that most of the time. This is thinking, thinking at its worst, these disciples. So we get to the fix. This is the last one that I want us to highlight. (laughs) Do you catch the understatement of this? Verse um, 21. And then they were glad to take him into the boat. Uh, Yeah, I'm thinking so. So Jesus gets in the boat and the crisis is over, right? No, not really. That crisis is over. Both Mark and John tell us that that crisis is over at that point. But you see, anytime you see Jesus come through for you, then you've got a whole new crisis to deal with. Now you've got to deal with the crisis of belief. Okay, if he can do that, then what do I do with him? You see, John is relentless. John now is that second hand on that clock in my office this morning. John is the one who just incessantly beats the drum for us in this constant staccato rhythm. Jesus is good for your situation. What do you do with him? It's a crisis of belief. What will you do with this sign worker? What will I do with this one who makes claims that prove him to be who he is? It's a crisis. So let me close with this, some practical suggestions for you. Here's the first one, and I purposely waited till the end to give you this so that you didn't think I meant to do this through the sermon. So here's the first practical suggestion I have for you. Take good notes. Okay, I didn't want you to think that I wanted you to take good notes of the sermon today. I wanted you to take good notes in your experience with Jesus Christ every day. Now, I got to tell you, I'm not a journaling kind of guy. I told the service this morning that uh, when I went to uh, that last level of education, that, uh, formal education that I went to, they told us that for two years in that program, uh, we had to keep a journal. And I'll be honest with you, I say, if you're a journaling kind of a person, especially if a journaling kind of guy, I'm not throwing rocks at you. This is more of an indictment against me. But I thought to myself when they said, you've got to keep a journal, I thought, what, are they going to make me wear perfume too? This is ridiculous. I don't want to do that. But it was required of us to keep a journal every day. And then every week, we had to send in a report about the journaling that we were doing. I was going, oh, please, I don't want to do that. 
And I, you know, still, I, I, every once in a while I'll do it. And, and I kind of came into the new, um, the new church year and I thought, okay, I think maybe this year, every once in a while I'll go journal something. I, I'm smart enough not to make it a New Year's resolution because I won't do it long enough, right? But I thought every once in a while I'll do that. So I've had this, my journal from back when I started school, still got pages in it. Um, that was in 2005. Um, and so I had it in my desk and on my desk and I've moved it probably 15 times over the last four months, just getting it out of the way. And so as I was working through this sermon, and I got to this point about take good notes, okay, because now we're, we're far enough in with this that these disciples have a history with Jesus, and he's holding them to that history. So I thought, all right, so one of the things we should do is take good notes about what's happening, because you will forget what God does for you today. Ten years from now, 15 years from now, you will forget what God's doing in your life today. Spencer, look up, uh, give for us Psalm 27, verse 8, if you would. Okay, so now before you show it up there, uh, I went this week because I, I knew I was going to say this today, and I thought, what, so what have I done? What, what, have, what is my experience with God? So I went to this journal, and I came to October the 6th, 2005. And on October the 6th, 2005, I wrote this, and I, I wrote the, the text and the verse out. Psalm 27, verse 8, look what it says. You have said, this is a psalmist speaking to, Christ, to God, you have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. And we could continue reading a couple of verses, but let's just stop there. And here's what I wrote in my journal. What a great prayer. Now, I'm going to let you decide whether you think I've prayed that prayer since that day in 2005 or not. What a great prayer. It is distur- Now, this is me talking. It is disturbing how I so seldom let that be my consuming focus in life. It's so easy to seek anything other than God's face. Is that true for you? Am I the only one who finds it easy in life to get a focus that kills rather than a killer focus that causes me to grow consistently? It took me going to an assignment for school for me to come back to a spiritual truth that just rings true for us, all of us, all the time. Seek God's face. Where is your focus today? Take good notes. When God does something in your life, take good notes somewhere. If it's a journal, husbands and wives, don't look at each other's journals. It's private, okay? Don't write stuff that you shouldn't be writing, but don't, you don't have to look at that kind of stuff. It's you and God, and record what God is doing in your life. Because I'll promise you, if you will do that, you will go back years from now and look at some of that stuff and go, you know what, I don't remember that. But look what God has done. And he puts these pieces that form a road map for us that highlights his faithfulness. Take good notes, and the second thing is position yourself for good killer focus. Also didn't want to give you this one too early because I know what it did to me when my dad used this illustration many years ago. Uh, I don't remember what else he said the rest of the sermon because I was locked in on what he said. Here's what he said. You can take your thumb and if you hold it about this far from your face, five or six inches from your face, and you just stare at your thumb and you stare at it long enough, you will eventually lose everything else behind it and all you will see is your thumb. Okay? Now, some of you out there starting, okay? <laughs> right at home. 
Uh, that's, uh, I, he lost me in that illustration that day. I don't know what he was preaching about, but I know here I am a long time later, and I still remember the illustration. And you know what? It fits exactly with what we're talking about today. Anything that you move close enough to your face, it will block out everything else that you see until you just see that. And so Paul would say to us, I think, pull the cross of Jesus Christ so that it is your field of vision. And it becomes the filter through which you see the rest of the world around you. The psalmist would say, seek the face of God. That'll give you killer focus. And that will cause you to put together pieces that will be like that clock in my office at the house this morning that for a while diverted my focus away from what I thought I needed to be doing and ultimately pointed me to incredible truth. God is always knocking to get your attention. On what are you focused today? Do you believe in Jesus? And if so, how much do you believe in Jesus? Let's pray together. And as we go to our time of invitation, the prayer is, Father, that you would change lives, that you would complete the message in our hearts, that you would personalize it for each of us, whether it's for one who needs to uh, embrace Jesus in their life for the first time to those of us who have done that, but we need to be refocused today. Father, I know that there would be some here today who are so under the circumstances of their life, difficult, painful circumstances. We pray that you would be the sign worker for them today. We pray for ourselves as individuals and as a church, that you would help us to believe in ever-deepening ways. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.